we're continuing on in a series that is um, a bit unusual called Can These Bones Live? Uh, if you have that first slide. So um, when Josh, you know, so Josh is our, our primary teaching pastor. And when he sort of put this sermon series out there, um, we've got this little uh, Slack channel. If you guys aren't on Slack and want to be, let me know. It's our like communication board during the week. It really helps us to stay in touch during the week um, without social media. But he kind of put this sermon series out there, and the rest of us went, hmm, what? I don't get it. <laughs> so wait, how is this, these bones and Easter, how does this, how does this work and fit together? And, and Melissa and I were talking, you know, Melissa spoke last week and she's like, I hope this is what he wants. And I'm like, I don't know, that sounds good to me. I don't know. Um, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Cause you know, Josh, Josh and his uh, preaching and teaching, like he kind of lives on a plane up here, you know, where the rest of us are kind of down here. Um, I might be a little further down. Uh, but, but this is something that, um, as I have begun to look at it and get into it, it's like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm starting to get it now. Um, but I'm going to warn you, the sermon might be a little bit weird and a little different. Uh, it's, it's unusual trying to do this because we're headed towards Easter and we're hanging out in the Old Testament a lot. And so we're in Lent, we're in this 40 days leading up to Easter, and what we're doing is we're sort of superimposing Old Testament stories over the New Testament, and we're kind of looking through this lens of these stories forward into the ultimate resurrection and redemption through Jesus. And we can do this because, you know, our scriptures aren't just an isolated collection or a collection of isolated stories. Scripture is one overarching narrative. It is God's story. It is one cohesive, intricate true narrative all the way from Genesis through to Revelation where God, not us, is the main character. And so it's cohesive. It flows. And the main theme, though there's lots of different themes and lots of lessons that can be learned, but the main theme of this narrative, of this story, is God's faithfulness and God's goodness as creator and his kingship through Jesus in and through his creation. And so we need to remember that overarching thing as we go through um, not just the sermon this morning, but this, this whole series, that that's what we're doing is we're able to look at these stories on top of each other because this is one continuous story that the Lord is working out. So unfortunately, um, neither of the first two sermons got recorded. We figured out this morning there's something wrong with our little wireless mic, um, and so it, it wasn't feeding into the um, the recording, unfortunately. Um, you can watch Melissa and Josh in their sermons. They look beautiful, but you can't hear them. Um, and they did great. Just trust me, they did great. Um, but since they didn't get recorded um, due to those technical issues, I want to at least kind of summarize this theme so that we really understand what we're talking about and get the setup. This, the setup. The, the sermon series is called, Can These Bones Live? And this question comes from the prophet Ezekiel. Now, he's got his own book, and so you can turn there with me. Um, I want to give you a heads up. We actually have a lot of scripture this morning, like some really big chunks. So you might want to, um, there's paper, you know, actual tangible Bibles there on the back table, um, or if you have your app or whatever. But you might want to, I, I have most of the scripture up here on the screen, but you may want to follow along with me in whatever version or, or method you use, because there are some pretty large chunks. So if you go to Ezekiel 37, we're going to read this again, because it's good to refresh 
ourselves about what we're really talking about. Can these bones live? So Ezekiel lived and ministered in the time of exile. And, you know, the Israelites were at a place. They had had their own land. They had had their own nation, their own kings. Like, you know, things were pretty good. And then as a consequence of their own sinfulness, they are conquered and taken into exile by foreign nations. And so this is the context in which we find Ezekiel prophesying and ministering to God's people. And so in chapter 37, Ezekiel, it says this. We're going to start right at the beginning. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. As Josh said last week, this is like a semblance of life without the fullness of life. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. So God speaks, and God does. The whole emphasis here, we were talking this morning in Priest of His Prayer about our own striving. The whole emphasis here is on the Lord does it. The Lord speaks, and the Lord does And this theme is really important today um, for this sermon. So this passage is where this can these bones live idea comes from, okay? It's from a situation in the story of God's people where they had lost nearly everything that defined and identified them. They had lost their land. They had lost their leader. They had lost their way of worship. But the one thing they hadn't lost was the faithfulness of God and his presence. All right. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to back up almost a thousand years, and we are going to look at the story of Moses. Now, if you know the story of Moses at all, it's a pretty long one. 
You know, Melissa had a sermon last week on Deborah, and we, we only know like a little snippet about Deborah, right? We know a lot about Moses. It was a long one, 120 years long, to be exact. It actually spans four books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of those contain part of the story of Moses. And so we can't just read his whole story, though. At one point this week, I seriously considered just doing that because that's how this week was going. Um, but we would, we would be here a while. So what I'd like to do is something a little bit different. I, I want us to kind of look at the ebb and flow of Moses' story. And I want us to look for the places in his story where the faithfulness in the hand of God is present. In his life, for him, not only for him, though, but for, through him, to the people of God. And then once we do that, I'm going to kind of point out some significant th- themes and points that we don't really want to miss. But here's how I want to do this. I want you all to begin to think of what you know of the life in the story of Moses. You know, pull, pull up all those Sunday school teachings, right? And I'm going to kind of take a page after uh, out of uh, our youth pastor Luke's playbook, and I'm going to ask for some audience participation here, so you got to kind of wake up, Okay. He did this a few weeks ago. Um, And I'm going to ask you to give me snippets, things you remember about the life and the story of Moses, key moments that you remember from any point in his life or leadership, you know, all the way beginning to end. There's a 220 years worth, four books, a whole lot there. So there should be plenty to pull from. It can be the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever it is. Um, And as you think of them, just just go ahead and call them out. And I'll, I'll repeat them in the mic for the recording purposes and everything. But so what what do you remember and what do you recall? What stands out to you all from the life of Moses? Yeah, he, he intervened on behalf of his people when when they'd really messed up. God spare my people. Yeah. What else? He was a murderer. Yeah, and I think we forget that sometimes, the great things that happened in the life of the Moses. He killed an Egyptian that he saw beating a Hebrew when he, um, when he was an adult, still living in the palace. So he was a murderer. He was hesitant. Yeah, he made a lot of excuses. God, I'm not very smart. God, I don't speak well. And then finally he was like, God, just send anyone else. I just don't want to, right? Yeah, he had a lot of excuses. I resonate with that. God, not me, just not now. What else? The parting of the Red Sea, that's right, after he finally is released from, they're finally released from slavery and they find themselves up against the sea and an army and God parts the Red Sea and Moses leads his people through it. He was raised as an Egyptian. Uh, He was raised in Pharaoh's house, which means he would have had the best teaching, the best education, provision, and yet the whole time he knew who he was. He knew his identity as a Hebrew. He did. He spoke with him face to face. And we're going to get into that really intensely this morning that Moses met with God on the mountain and spoke with him face to face in a really amazing encounter. Yep, they got out into the wilderness and it's like, oh, well, at least back in Egypt we had, you know, better food and stuff. And they began to grumble and they forgot that they were being rescued from intense oppression and slavery. So, yeah, so at the very end, he finds out he's not going to actually get to go into the promised land. And he's like, all right, God, but I'm still leading until you kind of bench me and put Joshua there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm. He was very real with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And the Lord reveals himself to him out of his questioning and his crying out. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. The way he talked to God was like someone close, someone listening, an actual conversation with a friend. He did get very mad. We're going to talk about that, too. When he came back down that mountain and saw what Aaron was up to. Man, what a moment. You go up the mountain, you get tablets, and you come down and you break them. Like, God. That's he was mad when he stuck. He did. He had a bit of a temper. He sure did. That's how the whole story starts, right, with him murdering this guy when he gets mad. And he and striking the rock instead of speaking to the rock is what got him in trouble. Do, <coughs> excuse me, doing things his own way. That's right. You did, and you just ruined my point. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, that's right. God, what are you going to do here? I love his, his confidence. Like, God, you wrote this check. you got to cash it. What are you going to do? <laughs> do the thing. Yeah. You know what I love about that story that we often forget, the parting of the Red Sea? I think in our minds and kind of the way that we teach this in Sunday school sometimes is like he holds out the staff and the water just goes whoosh. It actually says a strong wind blew all night. Moses had to wait on the Lord's provision, and he waited. It that probably took that wind a minute to do that, to build this into walls of water. Any more? You guys are quiet up here. I know you know these stories. The burning bush, yes, excellent, where Moses really meets with God for the first time and comes face to face with him and hears him and has this holy moment where he is called into service of the Lord, where, where he also goes, uh-uh, I'm not good at this. I don't want to do this. Excellent. Mm. Yeah. You can see the hand of God on his life, preserving his life. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Good job. Yep. The Ten Commandments and the law. Huge deal, right? Getting that and taking that to God's people. Good job. You guys hit a lot of the, both the highs and lows there. Um, don't let this next slide overwhelm you. Um, but this is something, I kind of mapped out a bit of a timeline of Moses' life. We hit a lot of these, not all of them. Um, but this is sort of a graphic to show the major ebbs and flows of the life of Moses. We talked about how he was born under a kill order. The Israelites had become so numerous that Pharaoh was threatened by them, and so they were ordered to kill every newborn boy. And his mom has this boy. She hides him for three months. You know the story. Of his, she puts him in the basket of reeds, sends him down the river, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him and raises him. As someone said, he was raised as an Egyptian. Raised by uh, Pharaoh's daughter, grows up in the finest house with the finest education and all the provision. And then one day... He's out, and he knows he's a Hebrew, and he sees an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew slave, and he snaps, and he loses it, and he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand, and he's discovered. And so he has to flee because he has been discovered and what will happen to him when they find out what he's done. So he has to flee the house of Pharaoh. He has to go and hide out, you know, in, was it Midian, I think? Um, 
And through this process, he becomes a shepherd, actually working for his future father-in-law. This is how he meets his wife. And one day he's out shepherding, doing his thing, taking his sheep around, and he comes across a bush that's on fire, like Adrian said. And God is in this bush, and he calls him to come into his presence, take off his shoes, it's holy ground. And this is where he gives Moses the call, you're my guy. You're the one I'm choosing to rescue my people. I have heard their cries, and you're the one. And, you know, Moses is in this amazing moment and immediately doubts. God, I'm not good enough. God, I'm not smart enough. God, I'm not good enough, a good enough speaker. And when God overcomes all those arguments, Moses just finally says, can you just pick someone else? God's like, nope, you're my guy. And so he shows Moses how it is he's going to convince the people that God really has spoken to him. He gives him these different miracles to perform, like throwing down the staff and it turns into a snake and his hand leprous and not. And so he sends him to Pharaoh to speak before Pharaoh, and he even gives him a buddy. He sends Aaron with him to kind of be his mouthpiece um, since he's not very confident. But he goes and he performs all these miracles before Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's heart is hardened, the word says. And it takes a series of ten intense, awful plagues before Pharaoh finally relents and releases them from slavery. And this is where we get the Passover from this story, that they're leaving, they're running, they're exiting, they don't have time to let the yeast and their bread rise, and they hit the Red Sea, and they're stuck. And it's not long before Pharaoh's army is right on their tail. He's changed his mind. He wants his workforce back. This is not how this is going to go, and so they're stuck. And they cry out to the Lord, God, what are you going to do? And he tells Moses to raise his staff. He parts the Red Sea, and they go through. And let's jump to the next slide, please. And they make it through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is wiped out, but now they're wandering in the wilderness. They kind of like frying pan into the fire in a sense, yeah? But it's in the wilderness that God calls Moses up on the mountain, Mount Sinai. He meets with him face to face. He receives the law and the Ten Commandments and the instructions for how to b- they're going to build the tabernacle, how they're going to worship And he has this amazing experience with God only to come down the mountain and find the people worshiping a golden idol. And like, like I think it was Summer said, he breaks the tablets in response. He's so angry and so upset at what he finds going on that he breaks the tablets and now he's got to go back up the mountain and get new tablets. And he's there and he, it says when he comes down again, he's radiating, he's like glowing from the glory of God on him, so much so that he has to wear a veil. And then this next series, there's a whole bunch more that happens, and obviously this is just a summary, but they wander for 40 years in this time. They come to the edge of the promised land. They send spies out to look in the promised land, and they come back, and they're very discouraging in their news. Oh, we can't handle that. There's, there's guys too big in there. Um, in this time, there's a lot of rebellion. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of um, just yuckiness within the Israelites themselves and their battles with the people. God eventually, um, he causes Aaron's rod to bud, kind of a, uh, I can't think of the word, um, kind of his stamp of approval on Moses and Aaron. Um, But then it comes to the point where, you know, he's already gotten water from the rock once, so he's going to do it the way he did it last time, this time, instead of doing it God's way. So Moses does things his way. He strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. And because of his disobedience, because of not following the Lord and doing what the Lord said and doing the things the Lord's way, he discovers that he's not going to actually be able to enter the promised land. And so Moses gives his final blessing over the people of Israel, and he dies alone on Mount Nebo and is buried by God himself. 
and the Israelites continue and enter the promised land without him under Joshua's leadership. Now, that's a 120 years worth of summary, ups and downs in one, and it's not everything. But man, what a life. Like, doesn't this, just reading this, like, feel intense and feel like a roller coaster to you? You know, speaking in terms of Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones, there's a lot of dry bones in Moses' life in those low points, from right from his birth. And he said yes to God all the way back at that burning bush, like this amazing moment, and immediately goes into excuses and doubt. Even though there was this miraculous, spectacular, supernatural event. And, you know, I can't imagine that standing at that burning bush being called by God, that Moses could even begin to fathom all that his life would bring and all that God would do in the ebb and flow and the way that God would be redemptively present his whole life and all that he would take them through, right up to dying on the mountain alone, all the way back from meeting him at that burning bush. So if we were to read the whole of the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy particularly, we would see that Moses had a lot of dry bones that he wrestled with, that he needed life breathed into. And we've talked about many of them. He had the shame and the guilt of what he had done. He had doubt for God's ability to use him. He had insecurity about his own abilities. He made a lot of excuses. At some points he was just apathetic, like, God, I'm tired, and these people, these people, oh, these people, I'm over it. He had disobedience. He had conflict with his own people. He struggled with rebellion, and he went through a whole lot of wilderness. And at the very end, I can only imagine, he might have experienced a bit of disappointment too. Looking over into the promised land, having led these people all these years and all these miles, and he doesn't actually get to go in. He only gets to look over and see what God has promised. And maybe he was thinking, you know, what about the promises, God? What about the promises of Abraham to have her own land, to be numerous and a blessing for the whole world? You know, what about all the things that he had hoped for? What about all the things he had led toward? What about all the things that were promised? What about those, God? And so there's several things that I want us to notice here. First is that the life, most of the life of Moses is centered around the exodus. God actually saving them and redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. And the exodus was a process that required faith and obedience the whole time, the whole way. God was with them the whole time, but the deliverance wasn't immediate, was it? Forty years is not a quick fix, guys. It's a long time in the desert. But it's also a long opportunity to experience the character and the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And it's important to note that that whole time God was forming and leading his people and shaping them into the people that they were to be. Because God didn't leave his people in the wilderness. He leads his people through the wilderness. He is with them. Because, you know, if you think about it, even before Moses, God spoke to Abraham in the wilderness. He called him out. It was in the desert that he speaks to Moses and gives him the law. 
It was in the desert that he spoke to John the Baptist in the wilderness. And even Jesus himself was called into the wilderness to be tempted and strengthened. And what I want you to hear from this, guys, is that desert places, even though they're really hard places, they're not hopeless places. They're places of encounter with God himself. So look for that when you're in the wilderness and in the desert place. They're places where God himself breathes his life into your dry bones, into the things that you may feel are just done for. And most of Moses' story is silhouetted against that backdrop of wilderness. All right, so I want to focus briefly in on two back-to-back events in the life of Moses. Um, we can, yeah, this, this little bit of the timeline here, um, this little bit of the timeline centers around this moment where Moses is up on the mountain, like we said, in this amazing mountaintop experience in this cloud for like 40 days, hanging out with God, getting the Ten Commandments, getting the law, learning about all the things that they were supposed to do. And he's first ascended this mountain, and it's just this incredible time, and he's teaching them all of these things, and here's what it says. So we're going to go to Exodus chapter 31. This is another good chunk if you want to join me here. Exodus 31, starting in verse 18, and here's what happens. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. You ever wonder what God's handwriting looked like? I kind of imagine it as like that elvish that's like on the ring in Lord of the Rings or something, but he broke them, so we'll never know. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses fellow who brought us up out of Egypt, uh, we don't know what's happened to him. Like, he's been up there forever. I don't know what's going on. Let's move on, right? Aaron answered them, Oh, come on, Aaron. Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So he caves to the pressure. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel. These are the ones who brought you up out of Egypt. Josh likes to point out the tragedy of this is not just that they were worshiping an idol, but they were saying that this idol was God himself. They were making God into the image of something they had made with their own hands. Drop down to verse 15. Moses, meanwhile, up on the mountain. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. And Moses replies, "Mm, it's not the sound of victory. And it's not the sound of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. So what he has spent 40 days getting from God is broken when he reenters the camp. And he takes the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Wow, like he's really making this real. 
All right, you're going to eat your idol worship. Like, he is not playing. He is mad. And he says to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? He's really upset. Can you imagine the emotional contrast of spending 40 days on the top of the mountain in the cloud in God's presence and hearing from him and, and getting so excited to bring down God's words and his law and these instructions for worship only to find this at the bottom of the mountain? Like, what a blow. And so Moses encounters God and communicates with him in this incredible way, and all this happens, and he comes down the mountain only to find this immense brokenness and sinfulness in the people that he's leading. Um, N.T. Wright, uh, he's a New Testament theologian, when he, he's writing about this passage, he says this, and I think it's, it's so true. He, he observes that the more open we are to God and the different dimensions of God's glory, the more that we seem to be open to the pain of the world. Does that resonate with you? Like the closer we draw to God, the pain, the more that the pain of the world is like so stark. Because it's such a sharp contrast, isn't it? The glory of God and the brokenness and the pain of the world, the dry, lifeless bones and the mountaintop glory are right up next to each other here, just like Ezekiel saw in his vision. And so the rest of this Exodus story, you know, right up to the edge of the promised land where, where Moses comes is this wrestling between Moses and the people and God and the people and these intense ups and downs and ebbs and flows of their faithfulness, their trust, God's, God's intervening and them getting it really, really wrong really, really often and having to lean really, really hard like we were talking this morning on the mercy of God to spare them. And even Moses, this leader that was handpicked by God, even despite all of his excuses, is obedient and does things his own way at one point, and then he doesn't get to enter the promised land because of it. He dies alone outside the promised land on this mountain, Mount Nebo, and he's buried um, by God himself. And he's been trying to lead all these decades and all these miles, and he just doesn't get to see it. And so it kind of begs the question, you know, were those dry bones of Moses's wilderness were they really redeemed for Moses after all because the exodus seems to end with Moses dead outside of the promised land alone buried on a mountain Joshua has been called and stepped up and he's leading the Israelites into the promised land and Moses's story looks over it looks done without achieving the one thing he said he was after the whole time and so they mourn him for 30 days and that seems to be it. That seems to be the end of the story. Except, as Melissa gave a spoiler, and I'm glad you did, except there's just one more time in Scripture where Moses shows up. And it's absolutely fascinating and totally bizarre. It's a weird verse. And I'm not sure we really know what to do with it. So we're going to read it together if you want to flip to Luke 9. It's also up here on the, the screen. And follow, if you want to follow along. So about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. <coughs> Sounds familiar, right? As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Sounds familiar. There's that glory and that glowing thing. And his clothes become as bright as a flash of lightning. Now here's the crazy part. Two men 
Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions, I love this part, Peter, y'all, right? Peter and his companions were very sleepy, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing there. As the men were leaving, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. That translation there, it's bless his heart. He didn't know better. (laughs) Silly Peter, here he goes again. Sticking his foot in his mouth. And while he was speaking, so and God felt this way too, obviously. He's like, shh, Peter, and he just interrupts him. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. There's that cloud again. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Now we're going to continue on. Most people stop there, and that's, that's chunks called the transfiguration of Jesus, but we need to go on and see what happens next. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and it is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't do it. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him on the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This is one of those passages, guys, that just really kind of makes us scratch our head, right? Like, wait, what? I'm sorry. Hang on. What happened? So these two, like, guys from the Old Testament show up, and they're talking with Jesus, and they're all shiny, and there's a cloud. Like, this is really odd, if we admit it, right? Because, wait a minute, so these guys are like thousands of years before Jesus, and they just sort of appear, and they're not just spirits, they're in their bodies. Okay, wait, but Elijah, remember there was that whole thing with Elijah where he didn't die. He was taken up to heaven in the chariot. And then there's Moses and this really bizarre passage in Jude, which you're not going to read, but it says there's like a line, something about the archangel Michael, like fighting the devil over the body of Moses. Like, what? Okay, so I guess they both had their bodies. All right, okay, so it checks out. They're standing here like this is this is crazy stuff. And I don't want to try to make more like theologically out of it than what we can really understand. And I don't want to try and speculate too much, you know, on what all this means, um, because I, I think that we can really kind of get off in the weeds there. But what's happening here is very significant for several reasons that I want us to see. And there's no mistaking. I hope you can see this. The similarity between the account of Moses and this moment And the Jewish readers totally would have picked up on this. They would be looking back at this going, wow, this is like what Moses, what happened to Moses on the mountain with God. Because first, there's a familiar pattern to this story, right? So all three synoptic gospels have this story, and all three of them have the same order. Where right before it, there is this call to sacrificially follow Jesus, all right? Kind of like Moses' moment at the burning bush. 
And then there's this peak up on the mountain where this incredible encounter with God happens. There's like clouds and voices and, and shiny things. And it's amazing, right? But then after the peak, there's a descent from this mountaintop experience only to come back down into the valley and face to face with the reality of sin and failure and evil and brokenness. And they're right up against each other. In this case, it's the demonized boy. In Moses' case, it was idol worship and the calf and the people turning away. So you see the pattern up and down the ebb and flow of God's people. But more importantly is what Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were talking about. Did you catch it? They're talking about Jesus' departure. Here's what's cool. That word departure is exodus. It's the same word. It gives me chills, like to say it. So here stands Jesus just radiating the glory of God next to these two really important figures that represent the law and the prophets, right? And they're talking about a second exodus where Jesus is willingly going to come down from this mountaintop glorious experience into the place of despair and death, into this valley of the dry bones of all of humanity, not just one circumstance. And at Jerusalem, he is going to complete the full story of God, the redemption of his people from the wilderness into the inheritance they've always been promised. It's this amazing correlation. And what Moses and Elijah helped prepare the way for, what the law and the prophets could only hint at and point to, Jesus has come to finish the job. He's come to fulfill all the things that never got to be fulfilled before, all the things that haven't been seen. And so do you see how these two pieces of biblical narrative, like this Moses Exodus story with God delivering his people from the wilderness, and this is where I need my, like, headset mic because I need my other hand, but that and then the transfiguration of Jesus kind of laid on top of each other superimposed on top of one another, allows us to see the purposes of God, the consistent purposes of God being worked out over millennia, all the way back, all the way to the present day. And even on his best day, I can't imagine that Moses could have envisioned that mountaintop moment. As he's dying, looking over the promised land, feeling like his story is over, he never could have imagined what was to come in the person of Jesus. And there he stands. Can you imagine? Now, we don't know how Peter, James, and John knew it was Moses and Elijah, except that it had to be their conversation. And so they're recognizing, you know, I can just imagine Moses being like, oh, I see it now. I see, I see how God is really bringing his deliverance. I went through an exodus like this, but you, oh, you've, you're going to finish it. You're going to complete God's purposes. You're the answer to all the promises he gave us. You're the answer to the covenant with Abraham, the blessing for the whole world. I see it now. And Peter, James, and John are just standing here as, as bystanders, as observers, watching all this. 
And here's Peter, bless his heart. He's just especially dumbfounded by the whole thing, isn't he? He wants to prolong this transfiguration moment because this is so cool. This is great. We're here. Jesus is here. Elijah and Moses are here. There's a party. Like, they're glowing. Let's hang out here for a while. And he wants to set up these tents and, and keep it all there. But he doesn't comprehend that the exodus of God has both mountains and valleys in it. And that without death, resurrection isn't possible. And without resurrection, hope isn't possible. And so the valleys are necessary. Here's the things I want you to really take away from you, and then we're going to wrap up with some, with some prophecy. The exodus of God is often a longer story than what we usually want or what we expect. And the wilderness, guys, is a part of it. Peaks are great, you know. And we might want to set up a tent and camp out there and hang out because that's awesome. But at least for now, we're equipped by the peaks so that we can come back down and be poured out and used in the valleys. The wilderness, even though it's a hard place, is not a hopeless place. It's a place of encounter with your God. And even when it seems like your story is over, even when you're tired, even when you've had enough, even when you feel like you've gone as far as you can go in your strength and you may have, what we need to realize is that God in his faithfulness is working out his story that he is the main character of. And he's not done even now. And that's really good news. And like Peter, we are often completely bewildered trying to understand God's ways and his methods and his timing and what he's doing. But the word that we must cling to is what the voice of the Father said over Jesus at that transfiguration moment. Speaking over Jesus, he says, This is my son. I've chosen him. Listen to him. So the way out of the wilderness is listening to and looking at and following Jesus. And when it's all said and done, though, and this is the cool part, I hope this lands for you the way it landed for me last night. God gave me this last scripture, and I went, <gasps> like, again, chills, because I wasn't sure how I was going to wrap this up. When it's all said and done, watch this. When the full glory of God is revealed, when all of his purposes are accomplished, and it's all said and done, Watch what becomes of the wilderness. Watch what becomes of those mountains and those valleys. This is Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord, the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Watch this. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. All those things that we thought were so big and amazing and all those things we thought were so hard, leveled. 
Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. I literally have chills reading this. This is God's promises to us. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and his people will see it together. Even the things that we think are the most amazing mountaintop experiences, when it's all said and done and God's had his way, even those are going to look like flat plains. And all the hard junk, all the stuff in the wilderness, it's going to seem like nothing in comparison to his glory and his presence when his purposes are accomplished. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that good news? All right. Thank you, God. The goodness and the faithfulness of God is the great equalizer in this story. And this is the lens that we are looking through as we approach Easter, as we approach the story of resurrection.